and welcome to Librarians Allowed, a new independent monthly podcast presented by the Academic and Special Libraries section of the Library Association of Ireland. I'm your host, Laura Rooney-Ferris of the Academic and Special Libraries section. Every month I'm hoping to talk to a new library and information professional or focus on a different aspect of the profession or a different project. The aim is really to allow information professionals in their own voice to talk about their career paths what they love or don't about the job and where they see the information profession going. So it's a podcast uh, by librarians featuring featuring librarians talking about librarian stuff. Uh, My first guest this month is the wonderful Jane Burns and in the spirit of the piece I'll let Jane speak for herself. Okay so I'm here with um, Jane Burns who works in uh, RCSI and she's our uh, our first guest on Librarians Allowed. Um, and one of the reasons I really wanted Jane to come along as our, our first guest is because Jane is really involved in the profession. Everybody has amazing things to say about Jane. <laughs> um, and you've worked in so many different types of libraries. You've got lots of diverse experience. So um, as far as giving voice to the diversity of, of the profession, I think you're a perfect first guest for Librarians and I. Well, so thanks very much, not to put Laura. too much, not to put too much pressure onto you <laughs> as our, as our first guest and uh, the ambassador for the profession. Um, so the first thing I'm going to just kind of talk to you about or ask you to tell me about is what what brought you into librarianship in the first place. Well, I'd like to say that I had this lifelong vocation to be a librarian, but to be honest with you, it was I was home with two small children. And I was thinking, what could, what kind of a career could I move into that I could have a nice work balance? And I think I had kind of this notion that I would be a librarian in a school and I'd read stories and bring the kids to the library anyway and I'd do story hour and things like that. And I saw the course advertised in UCD and a lot of the things that would describe the qualities that you would need to be a librarian, that resonated with me. So I first did the diploma in library information studies back in 1995. So that was kind of life work balance. It looked interesting. Mm-hmm. And it was always UCD that you wanted to go to, or well, at the time in Ireland, UCD was the only it, it was yeah. the only offering, and um, it was great because one of the nice things they had at UCD was that at the time it was an EU funded course, and because I'm a dual citizen, I was able to go to do a masters for free, and they had a fantastic Montessori crash. So it was. The kids could, the twins could go there, so That's it was lovely. Ideal. <laughs> it was ideal, and UCD is a fantastic university. Uh, and so to have a, you know, my second master's degree from school like that was, for me, I thought was quite prestigious. Mm. So, and I was really happy that I that I had undertaken the course. And during the, I guess during the time of taking the course, I was really enlightened about what librarianship was about. I think I would have been quite ignorant beforehand. I would have thought either it was this, you know, fantasy story time, or that it was really boring, was uninteresting, and and doing the course and having guest lectures and then actually starting to work within libraries, it really changed my mind about, yeah, this is a profession that I want to be a part of. Mm. So at that time, I decided to apply and stayed on to do a master's in library information studies the following year, because I really saw research at that point being an integral part of how I wanted things to go. Mm. And that was also at UCD. So it was quite different to what you expected it to be. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that was great was meeting people on the course who were, some of them were practitioners, were already working in libraries. Um, some of them were, you know, recent graduates who had never worked in a library before. And there was a real eclectic mix of people from around the world. And it kind of was the first time that it dawned on me that actually, 
information was something that could really connect you to other people. Mm-hmm. So I think living in a new country and um, trying to make friends and trying to say, well, where could things go or how could my life be interesting? This really opened the door for me. Um, so what was your first master's in? Oh, I have a master's in financial management. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's something that a lot of librarians wish they probably had. Well, which was incredibly boring, you know. So. <laughs> well, a lot of people would say that about librarianship too. Yeah, but they're wrong. Yeah, but they're wrong. They're wrong. But in the case of financial management, it's really boring. boring. Yeah, but but necessary. Um, <laughs> and it's an interesting combination. You don't get too many librarians who have strong financial background. No, and that's something that has always, I think, helped me to get positions and also helped me in positions because I would have really good understanding of budgeting and finance, um, be able to read a spreadsheet, be able to negotiate with suppliers, and also to be able to sit on a budget committee and know what people are talking about. Mm. And you have, you know, you have the, the education behind you and it's, well, actually, I do know what I'm talking about. Um, so it was an unusual combination. Yeah, and increasingly, I'd say it's, it's becoming such a big part of the job, certainly if you're running a small library. and Yeah, especially for small libraries. But it also, I mean, I worked, I'm going to talk a little bit about my career, but it allowed me to move into career paths that were not open to a lot of other librarians. So I worked in tax for a while, in a tax mm-hmm. library for a while. So to be really able to understand what the users were looking for, you know, without having to kind of self-educate, I really knew the terms and mm. it gave the library a lot of credibility to say, our librarian has an MBA. And I would say, oh, and MLIS as well. Yeah. So, you know, those two things went together. So it was a good combination. So when you finished um, in UCD, mm. when you finished the library course, what was your first? Well, my first course was, was, in, was during UCD and it was the Dublin Institute of Technology where uh, particularly people in my generation, they that was the one place that always had jobs for students. Mm. So you could get a Saturday job or evening jobs. And I worked in Mountjoy Square with one of the best bosses I've ever had, Anne McSweeney. And um, basically I was shelving books, I was answering students' queries, and I really knew very little about how a library worked. Like, I had had some experience in retail, and when the students used to come up to check out their books, I would almost, it was like a cash register, I would almost looking for a bag to put their books in. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had a real, they used to make fun of me actually in the library, because I had this real retail mode. You know, thank you, have a nice day, you know, <laughs> especially with the accent. And um, But Anne was a fantastic boss in that, you know, even though you're only working there part-time, you know, five, six hours a week, maybe I went up then, it was like 15, 20 hours a week, she would show you everything. Mm-hmm. So I really got from a small library, even though it's part of a bigger institute of technology, but I really got to see everything from the books coming in out of the box to how they got on the shelf, to deal with students with a range of uh, skills, a range of literacy. So it was really great. And like that, I always, whenever I see it, I always thank her because I hadn't worked in libraries before. She gave me a break and she taught me kind of all of the basics and always throughout my career, like we check in, how are things going? And so she was to me one of my very first mentors. Mm. Sounds like, yeah, mm. she sounds like a great boss. And that's oh, she was a great boss. One of the things yeah. that can make a big difference early on in your career is a, oh, yeah, to really, a really see supportive that boss really supportive. and a supportive environment where mm. you get to try lots of new things. Um, so what, how did the reality of working in a library differ well, from the, what you thought when you signed up for the course? Um, well, these were, you know, third level students, so there wasn't any story hour. Mm. It was, one thing that struck me was that uh, at times the job was quite physical, so I wasn't prepared for that, like, shelving 500 books was a lot. Um, The other thing that I wasn't prepared for was how much that I would learn. I thought at that time, I was in my early 30s, that I had two two master's degrees, I knew everything I wanted to know, um, 
I guess I guess when you're younger like that, you, maybe you are ignorant. But I was surprised at how much I learned from not only my colleagues but from the other students. Mm. Um, they would ask a query, and I kind of really loved that whole kind of aspect of like the detective work. And particularly if they had anything that I found interesting, even though the query was satisfied, you know, I would take one of the books home and read it. Um, and then when they'd come in, and I'd have a chat with them about it, and just kind of really started to talk to the instructors and say, look, I see you have this on the reading list, but actually this book, you might consider this book as well. So even though I was only a part-time library assistant, I really kind of wanted to get immersed in what this, the college was teaching, and particularly like the, and like it was art, art and design and marketing, so like the books were beautiful, and even to, you know, educate myself even more, like some art that I didn't know about, and, and to talk to the students, and why had they gone into that field, and I mean, little things like even the, the equipment that they use, you know, I just thought it was pencils and whatever, but there's actually quite intricate amounts of material. So I think for me that was, I guess, a light bulb moment that this is a way that I can learn more than whether I'm sitting in a classroom or not. Mm. So that's what I really, I was one thing that kind of, that was a big hook, that I can, I can learn something. Mm. You know? And was that kind of a surprise to you? Was it was, it something yeah. you didn't know about yourself? Yeah, no, I just thought that I, <laughs> I thought I pretty much knew it all at that point. Um, and it never really occurred to me that librarians would do that. I thought that librarians would organize things, uh, interpret things, but it, that element of learning hadn't really jumped out of me, even on the course. Mm. That's something you hear quite often from librarians mm. that, you know, and you see demonstrated in the behavior of a lot of librarians mm. that the, the role really brings out so many different facets of the personality that a lot of people describe when they go into the, the mm. job, that it suddenly ignites a lot of things that they maybe didn't know were there, a lot of aspects of interest yeah. for them that suddenly come together in this one role. Yeah, and I think too, like, you know, having the opportunity to do the thesis for the MIS and then working with students and faculty who are working on their thesis to really see that research was and so was a component of library information services uh, or even like information skills. I had never even thought of that. Well, why would you research? People come in, they borrow books. Mm. But there's so much more to that. And that was, I guess, kind of firsthand evidence seeing people, how they behaved, how they interacted with information. Um, the types of queries and the different approaches that people would have and like you could have a lecture that have maybe 25 kids in the class and there could be four or five different ways they'd even come at a, a question that they had to answer so for me I thought yeah there is there is an element of research involved in this work so mm. that was something that attracted me yeah that's another aspect of mm. the job that's quite interesting you forget that you know, the, the process of information itself and how you gather information mm. is in itself a skill and something you don't always realize until you either go into a role that's quite heavily research-based mm. or you become a librarian and you see that there there is a whole kind of psychology behind the process there is of how whole... people gather information. Yeah, it's fascinating. I find it absolutely fascinating. I think at this stage of my career, the other thing that I love is that um, because like, you know, it's a fair amount of writing, I do teaching as well, is it's kind of almost the serendipity of, you know, you, you think in some ways, and librarians are really good at this, because we tend to be generalists, that we can we don't have to know a subject area in order to manage the subject area. Mm. Because we, we analyze information in a very different way than other people. But when you see that, for example, see how to write a, an article or a research paper and how the structure works, because we also know how it is discovered. So we know the reverse engineering. We come at things from a complete 360 degrees that it's fascinating to see that people only kind of come in at a 90 degree angle. Yeah. And then when you enlighten them, they say, oh, I never thought about that. Mm. So how would you find a paper on the topic that you're looking for? This is how you should structure your work. 
So it's kind of things like it, how it all folds together. Yeah, mm. it's a bit like suddenly having a superpower. It's like <coughs> you, you suddenly discover that actually you don't need to know everything about the one topic because you have the tools yeah, available to know, to know anything about any topic anything. if it's thrown at you, yeah. just given given the right amount of time. Yeah. So yeah, librarians are... Awesome. <laughs> we are. We are, we are superheroes like that. Um, so what about, what? how would you kind of describe your career path to date or where did you go from from, uh, from that first job well, and the igniting all that passion <laughs> and interest and... Well, well put it there? this way, at the time, this was like the early 90s, I went with the jobs work. Yeah. And there was a lot of, uh, very hard to get a permanent position and there was a lot of contract work. But I saw there as an opportunity. So mm. even as a student with two small children and I had the job in uh, Dublin Institute of Technology, there was um, a project from the Center for Soft Condensed Matter at UCD. They would just put a notice up on the bulletin board. They were looking for a librarian to set up a small library. And that's all it said. I said, go over and have a, have a chat with them. And basically what they had was a room full of very specialist books. So soft condensed matter is like plastics and polymers. Um, and they had gotten some grants. A, there's a term you don't hear very often, soft condensed matter. Soft condensed matter. And they had I thought a, you would never thought you'd be no, working in I had to write it every time that I, I answered an email I had to write it down because I kept getting confused what it was. Mm. Actually I think it was only email was only starting then. But um, so they had got a couple of grants and what they wanted to do was they wanted to have their own library. Now they had a obviously they had support of the main library in U C D, but they wanted their own library and they wanted it twenty four seven because their researchers worked all around the clock. And they didn't want their books to be mixed in with everybody else's books, you know. So uh, I went into the room, and I always remember Dr. Wackhorn. He was also another, I, I had a lot of good experience with bosses. And he um, said, look, this is where we want to have the library. It was a room maybe a little bit about this size. We have this amount of money, and we have so many books, and we have an old Apple Mac, and that's all we have. What can you do for us? So I kind of, I was challenged by it. I also kind of, the money wasn't too bad. It was a once-off grant. And I, so I put together this thing, and I had used Apple Macs in college, and I found a, an old copy of FileMaker Pro, and I put together a database for them. And I wrote them a manual, and I made my own stickers for them, and I did all that, you know, mm -hmm. they, they had a budget of like 50 pounds at the time. Um, but it was great because the, the staff there had ac direct access to what they needed. It gave me a chance to work with science, um, which helped me, you know, later on in my career. And I got to really be exposed to very high level researchers. And um, like that it was a topic that I, I wouldn't even know what plastic polymers were. Yeah. But that was great for me because it was a different environment. It was kind of what I wanted to see when I, I did move into a lot of solo librarian work. You had to do everything and you had to think about, well, if someone's coming in here at three o'clock in the morning, how are they going to borrow a book? And how are they going to get it and find it? So that was a really, I really enjoyed that experience a lot. And I did that for two years. I did it during the diploma for the masters. And when I left, I left them guides and all that. And when Dr. Weck retired about 10 years ago, he said that there was finally the, when they had upgraded, they had been using my stuff for like 15 years. Wow. Yeah. So just adding material and so, but that was great. I still, I hear from some of them every now and mm -hmm. again. Uh, so I did that, that was, I did that in the morning. So I used to drop the kids in early to the crash and do that for an hour every morning and then go to classes and then work on Thursday evenings and Saturdays in the DIT. But after that, um, there was a lot of money coming into Ireland from Atlantic Philanthropies mm. and there was a chance within the department to apply for a project which was called the National Database of Voluntary Sector Research. Uh, and I applied for that and I got the job. So it was, for, it was a one year contract and it was perfect because the kids were still, I kind of always was balanced. So it was a year before they were going to primary school. And that project was, for me, was really, I guess, uh, 
an eye opener and it really kind of changed the way that I really thought about I guess end users and connecting research and funding and these things had never occurred to me but basically what the database set out to do was to compile a list of resources for anyone doing research about the voluntary sector in Ireland, North and South. Mm -hmm. Because what had happened, and it still happens quite a bit, is that say a voluntary body uh, applies for funding. They get money for funding, they do their project, they do their bit of research, but there's very little money for dissemination. Mm -hmm. So you go in and there's boxes of these reports and nobody knows about them. So it was kind of the first, that, not directly that, that project, but this approach of uh, philanthropies was, let us see the correlation between a research question, a research project, what impact does it have on policy, what impact does it have on government, and what impact does it have on people? Mm -hmm. So let's see this trajectory of what happened. So this was an initial step. And a few things happened from that. I was not aware of the voluntary sector at all. And I couldn't believe when I started digging how vast it was. And it was everything from, say, Bernardo's, which would have big profile, mm -hmm. to very small organizations at the time, say, Threshold, that would deal with homelessness. And one of the things they had done with the project was they gave me a laptop, which was worth more than the car that I was driving. Because this is like mid-90s. Mm -hmm. um, so I would go to a lot of these really small voluntary sector places, and they didn't even have a pen. They didn't have a chair for me to sit down on. So that made me very culturally aware. So I wouldn't bring the laptop. So I would put things down in paper, mm -hmm. and then kind of add the material. So it was a data, I created the database and access was something we had learned on the course, really basic, and it was kind of, it didn't hold any of the content, it just told you where you could find it, all the different libraries and organizations. Um, so two really good things came out of that was, first of all, because I was on the ground, and I went all over Ireland, and I had to meet people from everywhere, from Kerry, I even uh, we formed a relationship with the University of Ulster at Coleraine, because they were working mm -hmm. on a similar project. Um, I met them by chance, because I was trying to figure out, I'm sorry for jumping around, we were trying to figure out a classification scheme. Yeah, we were trying to figure out a classification scheme to organize what we would say was the different types of voluntary sector agencies. So we ended up using one that was developed by John Moores, and we they were also developing. They were also working on a similar project. So we ended up working together, and both parties got more money because it was a North South project. Um, so anyway, that was the big thing that 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 leap was made to connect them. And the other thing that happened was because the project was so successful, they were able then to leverage a PhD. And I remember at the time thinking, I'm not interested in this. You know, I had I had gotten a job offer, and a colleague of mine actually took over the project. So she she finished her PhD, and this was part of it, not all of it. So it actually took off, and it had a life of its own for a number of years. Mm -hmm. um, it was things like at the time, like listservs. This was brand new. Yeah. So like I set up a listserv. I remember presenting it. It was a conference at Trinity College. And getting them talking about listservs, and people were like amazed. So what is this amazing thing this you amazing speak of? It'd be like now, like you know, talking about like a text message. Mm -hmm. So it's those kind of things that I could really see things changing. So I, that was a, that was a huge project, and then I worked for CERT, which is the training body for people in the hospitality sector. It's now part of Fulton Ireland, mm -hmm. and then I moved into Medairn for ten years. So I was that was a science environment. Really loved that job, and then I decided I needed a challenge, so I went and I worked for the Irish Taxation Institute, and I set up a library there, and then I was there for about, say, five or six months, and I was promoted. And the primary thing was to integrate all the information service lines, so everything from the library to the publications program to the website, and that was the first time I really got to manage a lot of people, and mm -hmm. I found that really challenging. Um, How many people would you be? 25 people. Wow, that's good. And we had, 
because very lots of publications. So he published seventy. Um, it was thirty-five tax titles a year. So you had an editor and at least one author. So he took a minimum of seventy external people that you would have to manage and deal with contracts, copyright, all that. And it was member-based, so really focused on delivering services for members and students. Mm -hmm. So it was a great job, and I was there for about three or four years. And then, of course, 2008 came, and that was you know, the financial crisis that yeah. hit Ireland. And at that point, there was a lot of members who were losing jobs. A lot of my salary was based on selling these products. Yeah. So I just thought, and the kids were doing the, you know, they were going into the last two years of secondary school, and I, it was a lot of pressure. It was a lot of heavy hours. and. Lot of traveling so I thought what else do I want to do what haven't I really explored and part of what I did was because when I the projects that I undertook at the ITI assimilating everything into one single like unit almost if you want was the conversion of everything to XML and I really learned a lot then about metadata online content and I thought this is something I'm really keen on and that kind of then took me on my next trajectory so I was looking for something in that space so a job came up at Getty Images and that was Search for Cavalier Editor. And that was all about building taxonomies, building ontologies, digital content, everything from archival material to images to music, film, all of that. And that was, I loved working there, and it was a great job. And what it did for me was refocus where I wanted to go. And that's when mm, the- That's a really kind of change of direction. Really change of direction. Environment. Yeah, completely different. Like it was, it was a really cool place to work. I was actually, you know, I work with a lot of young people. I was too old to work there. Like you know, flip flop Wednesday and organic food and bean bags and all this kind of stuff. But I it sounds ex like the sort of place that probably had a pool table in the office. Oh, we had we yeah. had a foosball table and. But one of the, I mean, obviously I learned that I got to look at beautiful pictures all day. I fantastic IT digital online content skills, mm. but again I got to work with people who were younger than me, and I always think that's a really good thing. Um, and really artistic, creative people. Uh, a lot of the people who worked in the photography editing department were photographers themselves, and their work was amazing. Um, it, and we had trans the Getty website is translated into eleven different languages. So working with linguists all around the world was amazing. And then it was um, a global company, so it was twenty four hours, seven days a week. So you know, I would come in in the morning and I would take over from the office in Japan, and then throughout the day be talking to the UK then mainland Europe, and then by the time I was going home, we were passing over our work to New York, who was then passing it on to Seattle and then back again. And mm. So that was, to work for a global multinational was really interesting and really different and kind of was a way to see, and almost everybody who worked there was a librarian who wasn't a photographer. And people might think, well, why would librarians work for online yeah, it's, content? it's certainly not the sort of environment that anyone not, not aware of the information but how does would think we work in. But you have to structure in information in, in a tax, taxonomical way. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the focus on the job was searching. So, for example, it has a librarian. We judge a good search as someone gets, we, they're looking for a paper or a book, and they find something that's relevant to their research or the question that they want answered. They're happy that it's come from either peer-reviewed or whatever background they want it from, and it answers their question. But in an online commercial environment, a successful search is a sale. Mm. So that's different. And uh, I'd say more than 60% of the job was current awareness and media focus. So I was never more aware of global events because we would sell images to newspapers, um, to websites, to television news, any media outlet. And it was almost in getting you the news, you could see the news as it was happening. Mm -hmm. And I always give people the example of when the Colombian miners were coming out of the, they were trapped underground oh, yeah. in the mine. We had photographers on site 
and the images were uploading minute by minute. So you could actually see the people coming up, inch by inch, coming out of the coming out of the hole in the ground. So to be involved with something like that on the cutting edge was was really really fantastic. It was really interesting, and I guess in some ways to see things from a different global audience, so be even more culturally aware, like that there were certain images that we would sell in North America and Europe, but you couldn't sell in the Middle East, and vice versa, or that we would have, you know, this stock photography of, you know, Caucasian, standard Caucasian couple, mm -hmm. you know, wife and husband, two kids and the dog. Um, but that wasn't representative of most people. So we then would work with our creative development team and say, well, actually, no, we have blended families. We have single parent families. We have gay families. We have, so that level of cultural awareness was, okay, at the end of the day, it was for commercial output, but it was really, it was refreshing to see that reflective kind of in what people look at and what people buy and what they want to advertise with and so I love that and I liked working with the with the archival material and just even old stills and so but all of that information has to be structured in order to find it mm. and has to be structured really well if people are paying for it so I did a lot of work on developing taxonomies and I always give the really funny example I know not, nothing about fashion I hate fashion mm. But I was on the, it was Fashion Week, the New York Fashion Week, and Jimmy Choo was coming out with a new shoe. And we had a modified Jimmy Choo taxonomy. You know, every designer had their own mm. taxonomy. But there was a new shoe that year, and it was, it was an advancement on the peep-toe shoe. Now, this sounds ridiculous when you explain it, but a peep-toe shoe is when a woman is walking and her toe peeps in and out, yeah. right? Well, not that a peep, when she's walking, you can see her toe. So that's a peep-toe mm. shoe. But a peekaboo peep-toe shoe, is when she's walking, it moves in and out, like yeah. it's paying peekaboo. Either it's the stupidest thing I ever heard of, but I had to create a taxonomy. I had to make sure all the metadata was correct, that it wasn't just a peak two shoe or whatever. Um, but that was the biggest seller. We made a lot of money out of that. So, well, I may think it's ridiculous. The customer who's involved in fashion, who's selling fashion magazines, who's selling to like soap opera magazines, or if you're a publicist for a celebrity, it's really important to them. So it was kind of to, I guess to knock off, I guess a few corners, to not be so, well, library work is intellectual, it's research work, but all information is important. Yeah. All information can be structured. And it should be what the user wants, but the person who needs the information, not the person who's organizing Yeah, it, it should be ultimately about the end user rather than your own preconceptions about own whether preconceptions. this is valuable material. But it. it's really helped because I often have people would ask me advice on ponchos and everything else, and mm. you know, I can tell them, well, actually, you know, that's... I can recognize, you know, a Louis Vuitton piece. Not that I ever buy it, but that exposed me to a world that I had never been exposed to. Mm. So I guess really after that, I mean, there was again it was part of the the global economic downturn. There was redundancies, so I was one of the people who lost my job, and I found that really really hard. But I think for me, the way that I was able to make my way back into my career was that I had always maintained my CPD. And I had always remained anchored to the LAI, particularly the Academic and Special Libraries Group. Mm. Um, you know, particularly when you're, I was almost 50 years old at that stage, to get something below like that, that you don't see coming, was very hard to take. And I didn't know where to begin. But I said, you know what? I have to, I built this network. Um, I have transferable skills. Let me see what I can do. So part of what happened when I was working again was I had started the Masters in Digital Humanities at Trinity. And it's all about building online content. So this was kind of a natural transition for me. And at the time I applied for the course, it was loads of jobs, but then funding was dried up. But still it was, 
I see that digital humanities is a natural extension of library work. But there was very few jobs. But, you know, I worked in Temple Street Hospital then on a short-term contract. And then I am where I am now, which is I'm a recent, I'm not even a librarian. I don't even work as a librarian anymore. And I always find it, uh, I guess, a little, uh, maybe a little bit sad, or I think um, maybe I feel a bit of fraud, and, you know, because I do, I talk about the profession. I'm a real advocate for it. and would always identify myself as a librarian, but I actually work in research now. Um, so not, I don't work in the library in OCSI. I work in the Health Professions Education Center. But I, um, I also teach at UCD in the School of Information Studies. So I think that you know, remaining anchored to the profession for the Library Association of Ireland, teaching our library students, and also being involved in research in a medical school has kind of, I guess I want to say, hasn't taken me too far out of my space. Mm. So that's kind of where I am today, yeah. so if that long journey. You in know. a way, do you think, just listening to all the different places that you've worked and the the path you've mm. taken, it's quite reflective of the way the profession has gone, away yeah. from physical spaces and working directly with students and working with physical materials into, Online, it's, it's almost yeah. like you become the library, you know, as, as a solo you, librarian sometimes I feel that too, that the do, librarian is, is you and you. the knowledge you carry that yeah. it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter what the, the environment is you're in, you are the knowledge, you, you are, the, you are the, the embodiment of what the profession can and represent. When you, I think for me, like to accept, you know, my own limitations and imperfections and maybe some, I guess, preconceived notions that I often may have, and I think that's, that's normal, but to be re reassured that I can go into an, any environment at this point in my career and not only do I go into it and learn about it but I become so immersed in it and know that I can learn and that's you know working directly with the people who are using the service or who that or that you're collaborating with or working with that I could in many cases what has happened now is that I actually am able to not only write and research about the area but I actually present on it mm -hmm. and that for me is great because I like to use that as an example to other people to say don't be frightened like you know I never worked in health before, and I went into Temple Street Hospital on a short-term maternity contract. And because, you know, the limitations of budgets, and I think as well, it's kind of, I guess sometimes maybe you see the longer picture. There were two full-time members of staff who both happened to go on maternity leave at the same time. Mm -hmm. So obviously their, their maternity benefits, and then I was hired part-time. And I think at the time it was seen as maybe just ticking things over and keeping the seat warm. Mm -hmm. But I had such a... I guess a personal relationship with Temple Street. One of my twins was sick when they were little, and I always remember that feeling of going in the door when you get, you know, it's in a rough neighborhood, and uh, you kind of go in and you think, oh, from the outside it looks like oh this rundown old building, and but when you go in that door and you have a sick child and you hand them over, you know they're going to be okay, mm. and that comes from the people who work in Temple Street. That doesn't come from the building. It doesn't come from yeah. the environment that they're in. It's it's the care that they have and the dedication they have to patients. So when I had the opportunity, I think I probably would have worked for free mm. to have a chance to do something for them. I mean, I sold raffle tickets, I've done mini marathons, walk mini marathons and all that for them, but I thought this was something tangible that I could do as well. So even though I was only employed and paid to work part-time, I would often do a lot more than that because, first because it was affection for the hospital, but I really thought, I have all of these skills that I have developed over the years. And the first step in that was to have an EU subsidized master's program in an Irish college. That how could I not share that with the people that I worked in Temple Street who were so overworked, who were people working full-time jobs with small families, 
doing advanced degrees to develop themselves to do even more for the sick children. Mm. So I would, I got myself on a couple of different committees. I worked with the research department. I worked with the nursing committee, and I love nurses, so I was so happy that they asked me to work with them. And yeah. um, and at one point there was a small project for one of the social work sections, and they needed material. Um, you know, a small repository it was like you know using Zotero, but they wanted stuff set up in a private way and that they could access. It was conference proceedings, but I saw that this is a great opportunity. I didn't really have the time to do it, but I met with them and I wrote a couple of job specs and I got four library students who were desperate for experience mm-hmm. and four of them, they worked for free so I worked for free and within I think two months we had the whole repository set up for them so I think that to me is what librarians do um, that we go in and we, we solve problems we help people access their information but we always look for an opportunity how can I not only develop myself but how can I develop others and how can I develop users so that they can do this for themselves? Um, so I think, to me, that was one of the, the best things that came out of that experience. It wasn't just that I got to, really hadn't a lot of any experience dealing with developing repositories, but to be able to do that in a practical, useful way. And that once, the, once I finished my contract and the volunteers were finished, they had to be able to carry on. So even for them, getting these four people at the start of their career to be so focused on I have to hand this over to somebody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, that you know, all this fancy metadata or whatever, they have to be able to know they have to fill in these columns and how they find things, for them was fantastic. So I think that's, that, that to me was one of the, I think one of the best jobs ever because I didn't make a lot of money. Um, the library was down, this, down a little hallway, um, but you could be as involved as you wanted to be and you, were, you could make a difference and the other thing was that to be around people like that, particularly the, the nurses and the doctors, but really the nurses and everybody like, anybody at the support staff, like even the, the porters and people who worked in the kitchen, and everybody who worked in the hospital, they had one goal and it was to make life better for sick children. And there's no way you couldn't be affected by that. Mm-hmm. And for me, that really was, I guess, a time to pause and say, well, what do I want to do? Yeah. Mm. And it sort of illustrates one of the things that librarians often find themselves doing as well is that you go into organisations mm. and you illustrate where you can make things run more smoothly. You, For them, yeah. You illustrate something that they're not aware of already yeah. and you kind of make life easier for other people. Yeah, and make life easier. And these, you know, I often used to go home and say, what's the worst that could happen to me today? I could get a paperclip, you know? Mm. But... You know, an ambulance driver or, you know, a surgeon or a nurse, you know, any kind of a specialist, you know, they had to, sometimes they had to deliver really bad news. Mm. And, you know, they saw not only children at the most vulnerable, parents at the most vulnerable. And I admired those people, and I still do so much, that I think if I, you know, if it had been an opportunity to work there full time, I probably would never leave. Um, but I, I still keep in touch with people from Temple Street, and so it's a wonderful place. Mm. Mm. So it sounds like out of many different roles that you've had that's one of that was one of my really kind of resonated with you with me yeah because for me that really was making a difference for I guess you know like if you're in a university library and I've worked in a couple of like I worked in DCU on a couple of research projects and the DIT and the library in UCD and um, the people come in with uh, I guess there's an expectation there it's a it's a known relationship 
I'm a student, I'm a faculty member, I come to the library, you know that you're going to support me, perhaps we work collaboratively on research, um, you come and help my students. So there's a known relationship there. But going into, say, an environment in Temple Street where they, they, the expectation was I would come in and just open the door and kind of and help people take yeah, things over until... Yeah, purely transactional. Yeah, very transactional. It's actually going to, to take the to the nursing research committee and saying, look, I see that you meet twice a month and I know you have a conference coming up. I have a lot of experience working in conferences from mm-hmm. academic special libraries. I really like to be involved. Um, and to see kind of... It was humbling because it was they maybe hadn't expected that before. And then to say, look, you're doing great work. So it was a reassurance as well of what they were doing. I even put together like conference packs and things like that, which we do so easily. Yeah. Um, and think nothing of it in name tags and all these, you know, like the ANS, nobody has a conference like ANSL. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> well, I could say that because I go to lots of conferences and present to them, and, uh, but nobody does it like ANSL. And it was to kind of see, I guess to kind of transfer that and see that it did make a difference. And mm. it was, you know, I guess even in terms of say information, like there was a resistance by particularly like senior staff who were very time pressed, extremely time pressed to use electronic information. And it was because it, it, it could be, it is scary. Like we forget that it is scary. Yeah. Oh, you must log into this. You have to log into that. You have to go into Athens and then you say, oh my God, like, you know, just give me the damn paper. It's, it's a very pressured environment when you're working with health, healthcare professionals also because they their focus is on Know, patient outcomes. Yeah, well, and they, there they, isn't always time to learn something like the, the skills. Well, they have two hours in a week to write a paper that they're writing, and they need to get the paper straight away. But that was one thing. Once you kind of showed them how it worked, and one of the ways I did that was, like, particularly with the young doctors, was they would come in and say, "Oh, I don't understand these databases. How do you find it? It's all over the mm-hmm. place." I said, "Okay, well, say for example, I come into you and say I have a pain." I said, "Where's your pain?" Well, it's, it's in my arm. What part of your arm? Well, it's my elbow. What, what part of your elbow? So I said, that's how databases work. You go in with the most broadest category, and then it's asking you, well, what do you mean? Do you mean, you know, urinary tract infections in adolescents? Okay. Urinary tract infections in adolescents, boys or girls. So see how it gets narrower and narrower? Mm-hmm. So you get kind of down to where it is. And once you learn to speak other people's language, and I don't mean like in terms of linguistics, mm-hmm. but the, where they're coming from and, you know, they're, they're, how they orientate the world, once you make that leap, then people get it. Yeah, once it's contextualized yeah. for yeah. them, uh, it's, it makes more, it makes mm. more sense. Yeah. So yeah, that was that actually was one of my favorite jobs. Mm. Yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. Um, so what about what you do now? Your your current role um, and what your typical day is like, or if there is a typical. There's day. not a typical day. Um, uh, the Health Professions Education Centre is a relatively new. Um, department within RCSI and primarily what we do is we work with and support our colleagues in development of health professional education mm-hmm. um, so it's kind of really the role is support of the college in terms of curriculum development innovation research so we work in in, co- in collaboration in conjunction with lots of other departments so we wouldn't stand alone we're kind of like I said it's relatively new but what we'd like to I think with a department would like to look for what it looks like is that it works a little bit with research a little bit with the library yeah. a little bit with all of the educators in the medical school um, to kind of you know support them in ways maybe come up with new ideas and to facilitate research on a different level say than just query base so for that that's pretty much what I do uh, in RCSI and it changes all the time the jobs evolve 
And then I love uh, as well. I do the I do I teach in UCD in the School of Information Studies, and I teach this great course management for information professionals. And I love that because I have, you know, students who are from an MLS who are doing the MLS course and the Master's in Computer Science course, and I think it blends really well. Both sets of students learn from each other, and for me, it's a way to stay. I got to keep my skills fresh. I have to stay up to date. I get to meet young people, which I love. And it has forced me to reevaluate the way that I even interpret information. So, for example, um, one of the things, you know, which is very big in our area is collaboration and working with other people. And you can be thrown into on a committee in work. Uh, if within, you know, the LAI, we can join committees and things like that. Mm -hmm. But how do people work together and, and management styles and communication styles? And I didn't just want to do, you know, a straight textbook thing to illustrate that. So I came up with, I run a scavenger hunt every semester. Mm. And it does that. It helps the students learn how to collaborate in a time-bound, very specific, and often like in work, a very irrelevant experience. I mean, finding ducks and golf balls. Mm. It's, that's not what the purpose is. The purpose is to work together in a very quick way um, to evaluate their skills. Like I always have them before the scavenger hunt just write a note to themselves and put an envelope. I think my role in this project will be. And they're always surprised. 90% of the time they all think they're gonna be leaders. But some of them say, actually, I was really good at coordinating maps. I was good at calming people down. Mm. Um, I was good at keeping everybody's motivation. So it's, a pro it's reflective for them. The other thing is because they come from two different schools, and like if I give, give an example for this term, I have 57 students that come from 17 different countries it's very hard for them to mix and there's big lecture hall so by being thrown into a group I do that mm. um, it's an icebreaker and I always do it by week three so it's great for them they have now they know each other they have a shared experience whether or not they hate the experience it's still a shared experience mm. but for the most part they do like it yeah mm. and do they see the benefit of well they do because the long term yeah well hopefully so the scavenger hunt's the most significant that is the act of doing the activity but then individually they have to pick two or three theories of collaboration and write a reflective paper. And that's part of the course. I really tried to get them to learn how to reflect. Because um, that's something when you're working, you have very little time to do. And if you don't develop that skill early on, it just doesn't happen. Mm. Um, so they would, they have to write a reflective paper based on theory and based on their own experiences and maybe how they would do things maybe differently or whatever. And I'm always really pleasantly surprised by reading the papers because um, young people are very frank nowadays. And they, I've had one or two <laughs> students say, I I think that that's a very hard diplomatic way of putting that in. I have absolutely hated doing this experience. However, mm. I do know now what teamwork means. Mm. Um, I will never volunteer for anything unless I know what is expected of me. Um, and one of the things I do on the scavenger hunt is I give them kind of, I, I, I call them red herrings. So it's things like I tell them, uh, how many windows are in O'Reilly Hall? And that's worth three points. Mm. But it's a completely useless waste of time. I don't know how many winners are in O'Reilly Hall. So part of what I want them to develop is where will I put my efforts? Will I put my efforts in something that I can achieve and that's worthwhile? Will they get me noticed? Mm. Or will I ignore this? So like I say to them, like as personally, I hate messy email. I have beautiful folders. I like to archive. I'm actually like IT's dream in any organization. I never save attachments and mm. I clean up regularly. And given Everyone's tend to be good at that. And given the choice, I would organize my email all day, but that doesn't pay me. That doesn't, is not an output for my department. So what I have to concentrate on is what's visible, what's deliverable, what's gonna get me recognition. So even though 
it might be satisfying to get those three points. I could pick up 10 points by actually finding the red duck. So mm. that's what you put your effort into. So it's to make them conscious of that sometimes, you know, things are not worth doing. So you have to be able to be able to think about it and reflect on it. And the other thing that I also give them is that I often give missed information. So I will say, go west, but it, it's really east. Mm. And it's for them to not believe everything that they're told because you know yourself when you go into an environment, you're not always given the right information or the correct information. Now, whether that's deliberate or not, you can be thrown on a committee and you spend your first 10 minutes thinking, well, okay, I'm here to contribute. And then suddenly you realize there's an agenda. There's people coming out from different people. There's a little bit of tension here and what's what's happening here. So it's to be aware of that. Not everybody's on the same task. Yeah. And to step back and say, actually, what's happening here? What do I need to do? And for the most part, the other thing that happens for them is that the students who do really well on the scavenger and do really well on the reflective paper is that they see it isn't about the finding of objects. It's about the working together. Mm. And then for them, the other thing I try to instill in them is to be aware of your surroundings because you never know something in your, your line of vision or something in your space or something that you've heard, particularly as a librarian, can help you solve a problem. So I structure the whole, I'm changing the scavenger so I can say this, you know, I structure the whole scavenger hunt around the UCD sculpture trail. And I do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's a defined path. They don't have to go outside of the campus. Mm. Um, they have to go deal with the two lakes, but I always tell them don't go in the water. Um, so I don't have to worry about them going into traffic or anything like that. But that is a beautiful amenity that they have on campus. And for a lot of students, they get off the bus and they come to classes and they never look around. So this forces them to be aware of their environment. So from the first week, where I always I introduce myself, I say I'm a UCD graduate, I can't believe how much the campus has changed. I got here early today and I walked around the UCD Sculpture Trail. Then I usually have a guest speaker in between that and we have this little fake conversation. Oh, did you get here today? I got here early, I had a, you were recommending the UCD Sculpture Trail, it was amazing. And I have been amazed a number of years that students haven't picked up on that because the last question on the, on the scavenger hunt is, where were you on campus today? And they don't get it. Except for, I've noticed over the last few years, the one student who did get it, and I still remember seeing that look of she got it. They were the most, because once she knew that she was on the sculpture trail, she knew how the clues worked. Mm. And I always say that to them, look, this is a really, it's a fun exercise, but sometimes you may hear something or somebody may make a reference and they have to pull that in. So if you were like, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, so we'll say Mary. Mary realized early on that this was going to be focused on the sculpture trail. They didn't waste any time. They knew the path that they had to follow because they had paid attention to clues that they didn't realize were clues. So I think that's a good life lesson because yeah. as a librarian oftentimes, and this is one of the things I know, we're saying this back to a colleague, that what I think the key qualities of a librarian is not only for you to be interesting, but to be interested in other people. Because you'll pick up a little bit from everybody that you deal with and then you can translate to other people. Mm -hmm. So I try to do that in a very micro level with the scavenger hunt. Yeah, it strikes me as well that you know, whether the students realize it or not at the time, this is a very valuable lesson that most people only learn through trial and error. Trial and error, and and often over the course of many years and many different and this types is of safe environments. Yeah. That that sometimes there are battles not not worth not fighting. Worth fighting yeah. That you need to focus your mm -hmm. attention, particularly as a librarian, that can be yeah. a lot going on. You often work in on your own or in smaller organizations that you have to decide which. Yeah, and I love the reflective Which direction practice. you're going to focus your attention in because otherwise you're going to be torn apart. Yeah, and like one of the things that, and I think it's great, and I think it's a tribute to younger people because 
I think they have a lot more confidence and uh, they tend to be a lot more self-aware than I would have said people in my generation were. Mm. We just kind of went with the flow, you know, uh, or I'm speaking of myself personally, but they tend to be very self-aware and they, te- they tend to question things for the most part. So I, I know one of the things that always strikes me when the reflective papers come in is that they will say, um, so-and-so on the team took over and was yelling at everybody, but we decided, you know, we, myself and everybody else on the team said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stop for a minute. We're going to think about what we have to do. Mm. And I think that's, and they would reflect this as well, it's a very valuable lesson because you know yourself that the user of the library who is the loudest, who is the pushiest and can be sometimes the most obnoxious, they're not the, they're not the person whose need is the most. And everybody, you know, whatever their requirement, always thinks this is the most important and the most urgent. So to be able to deal with that like in a safe environment, like you know, mm-hmm. on a scavenger hunt where it's inconsequential, Okay, maybe the other kid doesn't like you or whatever, or they have an argument. But to know that when you're in a work environment, how to balance that because the person who is yelling at you or the person who is demanding, to have the confidence to say, hang on, wait a minute, you're not the only voice that I have to hear. Yeah. I have to think, I have to balance this against you. And so that you're not fighting back with the person, but you're reflecting on it. Mm. And that's something that has always impressed me that comes out of the writing of the paper. It was something that I was surprised um, that they would be able to make that transition say well actually in the work environment that could be pretty yeah. uncomfortable but now I know that I can handle that because they seem to think it's harder to do with their peers mm. so I that's to me that's a really valuable exercise yeah and they then take that knowledge into a work environment yeah. and hopefully have gained the ability to articulate yeah and then we have a whole debrief like like this coming week we'll have a whole talk about it like how would you use the skills and what do you think was important and and like you know really some basic things like I buy them uh, it's actually Carl McCauley's idea to get um, bandanas for the teams because I was going to get t-shirts and all those things like don't drive yourself get bandanas it's easier they can tie them on their bags Um, but the assignment of color as a team so you know you're the purple team you know you put out eight bandanas within minutes they're a team they're cohesive Mm. so how easy that is to do in an environment so if you're in a work environment with this department and little things like not to be materialistic but little things like that you would say you know within your department say you have five or six people that you know why coffee we, we have coffee together it's these little rituals that unite people that they yeah. can see this in in a and non-work these are, environment these are the bonding experiences in a work environment yeah and what i love is i've actually ran into a student i had two years ago oh about two weeks ago and we just chat met her on the street she's got a job now and really excited and and she had a bandana tied on her bag and i said why are you still walking around with that thing and she said that was the best thing that I ever did for my masters. And I just thought, oh my God, all the money you spent. <laughs> and you immediately asked her to put that quote in writing for you. <laughs> but it's a little thing like that that ties them to each other. Mm. And, you know, even if it, it, it sucks, if, it's, if it doesn't work, if they can't find anything, it's still they've had the shared experience. Mm. So it, it, I guess, I don't know, kind of, in a way, it's kind of also like when, you, when you're trying to transfer this into like a library environment, you know yourself like if you're working with other people and you have like you know, a difficult client or you're dealing with a difficult user and it's just, you can actually turn to a colleague and you can laugh about it or, and if you're a solo librarian, then if you really have to be involved in a committee, then you can say, you're never going to believe what happened to me today. And then you have, you have the shared experience of something so ironic or something ridiculous. But you need to have, it's that, that human connection, I think, that makes librarians different from other people. That we don't just have it in our personal lives, we have it in our professional lives, but we also see that to connect with another person, to help them see the world, 
the way they want to, the way they see their story, their, their own narrative. So you help people create their own research narrative, personal narratives. To be able to do that is a real commitment, and I think it's something that we do without thinking and without realizing the impact. But people will come back to you over time, and you meet them, and say even previous students that I've had or previous colleagues. You know, I didn't even know how to. I didn't even know what a mesh term was. I hadn't mm-hmm. been in college for so many years. You showed me how to use EBSCO, and I was able to get my degree, and I was able to show other students, and that you took the time with me, and it could be something like five minutes gave me the confidence that I could move forward. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason that people develop, but you can make a difference, and you can make a negative difference. Someone coming to you for help, and you say, I don't have time. Mm. Or, you know, you're a master's level student. What do you mean you don't know how to use a database? Well, if they knew how to use the database, they wouldn't ask you. Yeah, and it takes a, a lot of courage to Just admit to, not to, it ask, to ask for help. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I, you know, to kind of, I guess, round things with, why I like being a librarian and even though I'm not working in a library I'm still I always would consider myself a librarian still a librarian at heart it's to I guess kind of be that I guess an interpreter or a, I don't know a, not even an interpreter but to be the introducer you know the greeter of people mm-hmm. to content and other people um, and we do it so naturally we think nothing of it and when even like we do it everyday life like people say you know I'm looking for where do I buy red buttons and you think hang on a minute I know a librarian who knits she probably knows yeah and you send them a quick IM and you go and they come back to you so it's kind of those types of things yeah the, so that means you're going off a the, tangent, the librarian is usually the person who doesn't just say well I don't know they, they say well I yeah, don't I, know but I'm going to find out for you or let yeah. me do this search I think I know someone who I can connect you with someone who can tell you that exactly it's, it's the broker mm. it's the introducer and it's the broker and I think for me one of the things I would love to see um, particularly in an interview process and not just for new entrants but for people like you know I'm around a bit longer than you but even people of our vintage who work in different environments for an interview, either inter- internal promotion or even for a new job or to do a course, I would love for people to be tasked with something, to find something out, and something very difficult, something they never heard about, and you'd want their immediate reaction. And if, if someone was interviewing, say, for a librarian job or even a library researcher or an academic librarian job, and I said, I wouldn't know where to begin. I wouldn't hire that person. I would love for them to say, you know, I don't know, yeah. because number one, that's the first thing you say, I don't know. But I think I can find out. And to give kind of like a little narrative, well, who would you ask and where would you go? Mm. Um, and that would give you an idea, first of all, their openness to new ideas and new subjects, but also their connected, connectability. And I think that's one thing that um, about librarians that people don't realize. And it's something that I have found, because I have worked in lots of different environments, that people are very impressed with is our connectability. Mm. And I kind of call this, um, I've heard this phrase before, I'm trying to think who I heard it from. But it's our domain of influence. So it is not just that we can influence our own organization, but by the way that we respect each other and we treat each other and we develop each other. And even little things like that you would every now and again, not particularly after speaking, but after doing something or whatever, you'd get an email from somebody to say, or a, you know, a blog post, or whatever, even a tweet that someone would say, that was really interesting, it helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really, it helped a user or whatever that we are innately, and I think for the most part, I mean, there are exceptions, but for the most part, we are very good people, very kind people, but we recognize that our own value is never diminished by helping other people. Yeah. It's only enhanced. And to be able to, not 
it sounds ridiculous, like, you know, not save the world or whatever, but, but to appreciate that those, the networks that we have, so if I don't know how to do something, that I have almost a nationwide connectivity with people. Mm. And, I, in my, and I'm at this 20 years now, I have never had the experience where I would call and say, hi, I'm Jane Burns, um, I work at such and such a library, I'm a librarian, can you help me? I've never had another librarian say no. Yeah. And I often think, um, the other thing that we're really good at, and people, they do appreciate when you explain it to them, is that even though people, like if you work particularly in an academic environment, you work in hierarchical atmospheres, and you know you have deputy librarians at all these different levels, mm-hmm. but there is a flatness to it. So I always like give my example that I was kind of late to social media. I really wasn't interested in it, and it goes back. It feels like you've been. Yeah, I really was not interested in it at all. Twitter certainly for quite a while. No, well, I, that's the example that I'm going to give about mm-hmm. Twitter. And when I was working in Temple Street, I, like I said, I'd never worked in health before. And, you know, we'd often be asked queries. And so the, within the health libraries, we have this uh, health science librarians mailing list. Mm-hmm. And like Neva Sullivan from the IBTS is yeah. just amazing. And this, I mean, there's so many, I, I don't want to start naming people, there's so many wonderful people mm-hmm. in, in health libraries, but who are involved in the list. But I remember putting out queries. I'm looking for such and such a report. I can't find it anywhere. And this little known librarian who was just recently graduated, Michelle Dalton at the time, mm. um, would email and say, oh, here's the paper, this is the link. And after about three weeks, I said, who is this? So she was working at UL at the time, and I called her, and I said, how are you finding, what, what databases do you have? How are you finding this? What is your source here? And she said, um, I use Twitter. Mm. I said, oh, that's crap. I said, I don't care what people had for lunch, you know? And she said, no, it's really, really good. I said, I don't believe you. So she worked on me, and she kept, um, so I, I couldn't find something, and she sent it, and, she, and she'd say via Twitter. So I met her then. We were presenting at something, and fantastic librarian. Um, and I met her, and she said, "Look, I'll give you a couple of tips and techniques." She was presenting about Twitter that day. Mm-hmm. I give it a go. Give it a go for a couple of months and see how it is. And then I was hooked. And I always say, you know, one of the things for me that I know it's a good characteristic that I have. I was open to someone very so much younger fresh out of library school, but I allowed myself the time to be convinced. I didn't say, no, I'm not interested in that. Mm-hmm. And I love Twitter. Yeah. Um, I use Twitter for, for work, and what I've used Twitter for now is to really help, particularly in RCSI, other colleagues, and then within you know students understand, this is a way to do free CPD. Yeah. This is a way to make, to grow your network. This way to figure out who's in the space and what are people talking yeah. about. It's a way to call out to your community and to yeah. find a community. You find if you, you don't think you have one. You find your tribe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, that I think is something that I, I know it's not just exclusive to me, but that there is this appreciation of that new people to our profession, and this is one of the things that I really try to work with to get them involved, to encourage them. And I know you do too. And this is really an ethos from the academic and special libraries where I really learned that mm-hmm. was that we have so much to learn from new entrants to our profession, but they are our future. And to engage with them early on benefits all of us. And recognizing also that our more senior members of the profession, they have so much knowledge and wisdom that we have to try to capture that before they retire and before they leave the profession. Mm -hmm. So I think, I guess the kind of way that I want to bridge that is that with being involved in the LAI allows you to do that. Because you know yourself with even within our committee and then I on the executive board of the LAI, we would have people who are very senior, who have been in the profession 30, 40 years, mm. two very junior people. And I love that flatness that when we sit around the table, everybody has the same voice. 
you're a member, I'm a member, we're equal, um, and that we're there to help each other. And that's something that I think is not really available in other professions. And I think that's something that's, that is not well known. And I think it's something that we really should um, make people more aware of and to adopt some of our models of not only preservation of our profession, but also a preservation of care. Mm. And we, I think we are, for the most part, very good at that. So I think that's something that other people don't know about our profession. Yeah. It's one of many things that people don't know about yeah. our profession. That's a whole other question is, what annoys you about well, I hate the, the stereotypes. Yeah, the stereotypes because it seems every day there's another seemingly throwaway, flippant comment made about what a nice job it must be. And you sit around reading, you sit around reading books. Is your arm hurt from stamping books? And, and it seems okay for people to say that. Yeah, you know, what I, I, well, I always use, and I'm from New York, so I can get away with it. When people say things like that, I say, you know, I feel sorry for you. And this way, I say <laughs> that you're so stupid and you don't want to help yourself, and then. Maybe not so abrupt, but sometimes it depends on where it you comes from. get away from. with saying that? I get away with saying a lot. <laughs> yeah, so do I. I'm not going to say anything about what you say. Um, but that is our responsibility mm-hmm. because I think collectively as a professional body, this is why we all need to be involved. Mm-hmm. We need to, within our organizations, make sure that we are sitting on the right committees. Make sure that if we deliver any product or service from our library, that people know it came from the library. Mm-hmm. To be as professional as any other profession would be, and to value ourselves as a profession. And I think that's something that's changing, and it's something that wasn't there for a long time. Mm-hmm. For a while, I think that the LAI, and we have to keep in mind that it's completely staffed by volunteers, Yeah. that it was something that I certainly was, as a recent graduate, was very intimidated by. Or would they let me join? I think the movement in the last four to five years where we have not only introduced free fees for our students as they're studying, but for the first year of employment, to actively encourage them to not only become student volunteers at our, at our conferences, but to come on committees and to develop their own committees. Mm-hmm. We have seen, you know, in terms of the likes of the career development group and the MPD professionals, we didn't have people like that when I was starting out in my career. These are people who are going to carry us, I think, into the future. Mm-hmm. They have helped us reflect upon our own behavior and how we interact with each other. But they have brought a new lifeblood into our organization that has been desperately needed. Yeah. And I think, thank God, that they saw the value in us before we saw the value in them. Mm-hmm. Because I think for a long time that was kind of missed. Like I remember finishing my degree and you were kind of left to the wind. Um, you didn't really know where to apply for a job. There really wasn't a whole lot of connection between even, say, there was some, but not a great deal of connection between the LAI and the department in UCD and the various libraries. And, and the profession was changing then. Like, I remember like I was working at DCU on a, a research project, and DCU at the time was boasting that it was the only library that managed its own CD-ROM collection, its own uh, carousel. A ju- it was like a jukebox, that's what it was called, and this was state-of-the-art, and we used to stand there and watch the CDs come down. Mm-hmm. Um, but and there, were, there were exceptions and there were models, and I remember at that time, like because I was working in DCU, we had people who we see are leaders today, okay? Mm-hmm. So we have people like Helen Fallon and people like Carmel O'Sullivan um, who were involved in the, even the transformation of DCU at that time that was, had gone from an NIHE to a, to a university. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And so we have, the, if, we, if we look, for example, just even look in parallel, so we take someone like Helen Fallon, who was a business librarian, and we all know Helen has so much experience, who developed this, what I want the first librarians to write and to get published. This really wasn't a done thing. Yeah. Um, but through that, she really, in an informal way, and then in a very formal way, and now as part of the, the CPD committee, has really brought to our profession, librarians write, mm -hmm. and we have something to write about, and we write about it in a professional way. So even the uh, so much time that she's given to run writing workshops free of charge. And the confidence to go into that space and say we belong here. We belong here. So we are capable of producing material at yeah, absolutely the same level. At the same level. Colleagues. So I guess I, well, I, I'm kind of going around the houses here, but one of the things that transformed the way, and I know for me personally as a librarian, where I really saw it like, people forget the internet isn't around that long was Helen had um, completed a I think it was a master's thesis in women's studies and she wrote it women on the web and then she wrote a book and that was for me anyway it was the turning point because people then thought a librarian wrote a book mm. and it isn't about the history of France it was this is our place on the internet so and at also at that it was kind of a juxtaposition at that point Monica Crump, who was Monica Brinkley at the time, wrote a master's thesis on librarians in the internet. And I remember her talking about it because we worked together at UCD at the time and thinking, what is she talking about? What is this internet thing? Mm -hmm. And that's not that long ago. Mm -hmm. So I kind of give those two as an example to, I guess, kind of open the door, kind of, they push the door. And there's lots of other people. And I'm not, by not saying people, I'm not singling people out. But I always remember thinking that those two were really kind of, the internet's all space. Mm. And then, like I said, like you know, someone like Carmel Sullivan, who we all know, I mean, it's been so many committees between DCU and now at UCD, um, has always been, and particularly working in the LAI as well, has always been for me like a guiding light. Like she was one of the, I remember I had to do a project on what was the, uh, the future of the electronic library. I didn't even know what that meant. And that's when I met Carmel and I went to DCU. It was random that I was assigned to her. Um, but that, Particularly working that DCU in that environment, um, for me that that kind of focused how I could see libraries going at the time, mm -hmm. and I guess kind of what I don't know I'm, I'm losing track here, but what I'm trying to say is that there were all these pockets of inspiration that came from different people and from different not just universities but organizations and and then the ANSL really took off. You know I think particularly when it was reformed and I always called them like you know. The beginning of the Anne O'Sullivan days, and you know yeah. what I mean. That kind of. When were you in, in South? Oh, I'm, I can't even it before remember. Before I joined. It was before you joined. Yeah. And I think I've been asked about that. You know, what what did I get out of working on AS, ANSL? And for me, that defined for me the type of librarian I wanted to be. Because mm. um, I kind of was a little bit lost then. I was like, I would have defined myself by my organization, but once I got involved in ANSL, I was always defined myself as a librarian, and where I worked was irrelevant in terms of my personal identity. Mm. Um, so I guess, and you know, we talk about people like Anne or whatever, who kind of really opened the door for people, really saw people in a different way, like the ANSL conference that, you know, remember the first time I went to something like that, I couldn't believe it, how professional it was done, and every year it gets better and better. So there have been pockets of people, and big pockets of people, and big groups have kind of pushed open doors, but I guess the point that I'm trying to make with the new people in our profession is that they saw that before we saw it. Mm. And they, they saw, I mean, like, you know, when you talk to them in class and they come back to you and years later, like, I would have done a lot of guest lectures and they said, 
you know, when you and Anne O'Sullivan were talking about academic and special libraries, I knew that's what I wanted to be, the space I wanted to be in. And you're going, you got that? Like, that was a breakfast talk. So I guess that's really kind of floating I'm around. I'm always impressed at anyone who turns up for a breakfast talk. Yeah. At all. <laughs> um, yeah, there's so many kind of strands bubbling up in the profession now. Where, where do you feel we're going? There's, it seems at the moment there's so many possibilities. There's so many options out there for different areas of specialization. Yeah, I don't think that there's going to be every... And you know there isn't. There isn't one defined library and one defined library. I think where things are going to change is that we are going to be working more and more in, obviously, an electronic environment, an online digitized environment. But I think the way that our profession is going is that we, if we work together and if we realize our potential, we absolutely have the potential to be the leaders and drivers, not only in the field of library information studies and in education and research, the obviously related areas, but the models that we have developed and the skills we have developed are so transferable as everything becomes more and more data driven. So even if we look for examples, how so many people are involved, so many librarians working in uh, collaboration with their IT partners in terms of repository development, mm. that whole area, it's not just about organizing papers anymore. Now there's, you can have data sets in repositories, but you can put things into a repository, the same as you can dump it into a shared drive or whatever, but I, identifying who the users are, how they're going to use it, and how they're going to access it, and how to manage it and engage with it, and also to evolve it, you really need the skills for a of a librarian. Mm -hmm. So I would see our career, our whole field becoming very much changed, diluted in a lot of ways, but also that we become embedded in other industries. Yeah. And I can see that, you know, particularly in the field say, of digital humanities, um, field of engineering, and particularly in the area of health, mm -hmm. because health is very much data driven. Now I also see us kind of still being remain anchored to say things like book publications, journals, hard print material related to, you know, electronic journal. I still see the role for that because somebody has to do it and we're good at it. But the other area where I think that we're, where I really see where we're going to emerge is in this whole area of development of the personal narrative. Mm -hmm. So, and I don't mean in terms of storytelling, that's one aspect of it, but what I'm looking at is, what is your research narrative? How do you want to describe my original research question, my research process, my dissemination, my storage, and then how does that impact? So particularly in the area of health, if we look at that whole trajectory of research question, how does this impact on, and how can it impact on policies and ordinary people? And I think that librarians, if we really took stock, we have a role to play in supporting the role of government, mm -hmm. in supporting the role of political parties, not from a political point of view, but I mean in terms of, say, um, organizing information, but most especially for the ordinary person who their whole life is dependent now on access to information, correct information, and to kind of democratize information even more so. So I kind of see that's where we're going, and to be aware of the changes. Yeah. I think in such a knowledge-driven economy, economy. It's not just a question of where we're going, it's where, where aren't we going. Yeah. And the only problem is making other people, or particularly people in hiring professions, yeah. aware of the fact that they need us. And it's I, not I, that we can't, there, there's no end to what we can do. Yeah, but they have to make them aware. But we need to make other people aware of it. That's the key for us, I think. And I heard this quote, and I'd love to take credit for it, but it's 
in the digital world, in the digital world, participation is oil, mm. and nobody participates better than we do, and that's where we really need to find our footing. And I see from my my own personal experience that, you know, moving between say weather and digital imagery mm. to health and taxation, you couldn't do that with any other skill set other than a librarian. Yeah. Certainly so, not, not without repeatedly retraining. Yeah. There is no profession that draws a single thread through all yeah. of those different environments. If anything, you go in with the skills that you have and you develop more mm. and you only move on to the next thing. So it's not, you don't have to stop and start. You, you, everything is added to it. So it's kind of, you, we're, we're like a rolling stone all the time. Mm. Yeah, there is an arrow that runs through it all. And yeah. that arrow is you know, information and the ability to, to locate it and deliver it to who needs it and to understand it we like we understand it from inside out so we understand how it's structured we understand how it's discovered and we also understand that the impact of it and the value of it so i think any i can't imagine any industry that wouldn't need those types of skills mm -hmm. and i think perhaps they maybe will be called something else we won't be called librarians yeah. um, but i think our core set of skills but also our core set of values. And I, you know, I may be a bit Paul Markey on this, but our values of the commitment not only to other people, but to each other is, is, is pretty rare mm. for most, most sectors. So I think those two things are, are really, are, are, are what's going to keep us afloat. So just to, to draw our conversation mm. to a close and probably highlight some of the things that mm. you've hit upon already, mm. What advice would you give to someone entering into the profession? And I know that you work a lot with students and with yeah. people coming into the profession that are probably the sort of person who inspires people to join the profession. I don't know about that, but I mean, I do work with a lot of young people. And mm. so I guess the, and this is the advice that I give them is first of all, um, to believe in yourself, okay? Um, you have a lot to offer, um, you have a lot to learn, and you are, you are, you are, worth, you are worth a lot. And it is very hard, and I guess this kind of goes back to this area of resilience, that when you are looking for a job, especially as a young person, especially in our field, it's, equal, it, it's more challenging, or maybe equally as challenging, it's very difficult. But it's to remember, and this is particularly, not only looking for a job, but being in your life when you're having something challenging, is that it is only one part of your life at this one time. It will not last forever, mm. that things will change, that you have the capability to make them change, and part of the way that you can make things change or make things bearable or get new skills is to help other people. It's very hard um, when you feel like you're unemployable or you've wasted your degree or you're not going anywhere. But when you use your skills in a way that's beyond yourself and you're not getting paid for, in some ways, it does help you reflect and think about, well, what can I do to make myself better? So I always advise students, if you're all looking for a job, get together five or six years, go through each other's CVs, help each other, mm. look at the job descriptions together, always ask for feedback. So that type of, to be conscious of this, you know, putting things into kind of, I guess, packets and not to be disheartened. Even when you become a librarian, it's hard. You go into organizations, and I've had that experience where people, like we said, think you're stamping books. Mm -hmm. But it's your resilience and belief in yourself and you know, in your training and the difference that you can make that that will stand to you. And if 
If it's bad enough, then leave. You know, you have transferable skills, you don't have to put up with it. The other thing I would say to people is um, never ever stop learning. It's the one job in the world, the one career in the world, where every day you're guaranteed to learn something new. And often it's more than one thing. So if you're a person who likes to learn, and I don't mean sitting in a classroom all the time, and a person who has wonder about the world, and that you really have this notion of serendipity, and that this is the one spot that you're always gonna get that. And really just to hang in there, like that your skills are transferable, that you're gonna meet some pretty amazing people, and that by deciding to come into this profession, just by doing that alone, the rest of us know that you're amazing. Thank you so much, Jane. Uh, as always, it's been an education, and thank you for being our, our first guest. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Jane for being such an amazing first guest. Uh, tune in again next month for more librarian chat. In the meantime, you can follow Academic and Special Libraries on Twitter. We're at AS Libraries, or check out our website, um, aslibraries.com. Librarians Allowed is produced by Laura Rooney-Ferris. Music and additional editing is